Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 19th of October 2020, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're delighted to be joined by the two Davids. So we have David uh, Scott with us, bringing us Northern Exposure from north of the border. And we've also got our very own David Ellis. Um, well, we're in interesting times. What more can I say? Uh, yeah, well, OK, the, the, uh, the pseudo argument, the claimed argument between Manchester and Westminster continues. Uh, so this was being tweeted out today. Boris trying to buy himself out of trouble to the tune of 100 million for Greater Manchester. Boris is going around England handing out millions of her taxes uh, to councils to get them to ramp up lockdowns. All this based on a test that is 93% false positive. Well. Uh, there may be some debate about that, the, the specific percentage, but there's no doubt about the fact that uh, the false positive rate is through the roof. Uh, and uh, well, we'll have a look at that in one second. But of course, Andy Burnham, as we were pointing out on, on Friday, absolutely at the heart of the, uh, the global city's agenda. Uh, and uh, he is indeed looking for his big buy off from Boris uh, Bryan in order to, uh, to do what the government wants. Now, the government is now claiming uh, that they will uh, impose uh, this lockdown on Manchester if Manchester doesn't uh, play ball. But this, of course, is uh, part of the shena shena try shenanigans, again, shenanigans uh, over uh, devolution. Um, yeah, I, th I think this is, um, this is more theatre because, of course, what they're demonstrating here is the growing power of the city mayors. So he's able to show I'm a mayor, I've got real power. And of course, he's trying to say that he stands up for local people. Meanwhile, the government are going to come in and say, well, actually, we're we're uh, dictating what people are going to do over COVID. Um, but let's say welcome to the programme to David Scott, first of all. And David, uh, as, as this, these couple of tweets from Dr. Claire Craig are uh, pointing out, uh, there are questions or at least the justification for the lockdown, the continuing lockdown just isn't there. Yes, this is the case. The, the first graph here shows a very eerie uh, uh, trend um, whereby the deaths per week seem to follow the uh, PCR tests in the 28 days prior. Obviously, 28 days is, uh, relates to the definition of COVID now. If you uh, die of anything, but you had a positive PCR test within 28 days, you've died of COVID, irrespective of the boss that may have hit you. Um, and uh, 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 Dr. Claire Craig goes on further here and analyzes the data. Uh, and she writes here, you've noticed the shape of the two curves are very similar. We can test this. The chart be below demonstrates that since August, 93% of the rise in deaths can be accounted for by the rise in the number of tests done in hospital over the preceding 28 days. And she goes on to, to say how striking this is in the field of biology. You very, very rarely get such close uh, correlations. Uh, but that's what we've got here. So it does seem that the case epidemic is in fact an epidemic of PCR testing and little more. Uh, and indeed that is uh, shown quite starkly in the latest graphs from the Office for National Statistics. Uh, number of deaths registered by week, England and Wales, 20th December 2019 to the 2nd of October 2020. This is the latest release because of course the ONS is always a little bit behind. Uh, now, we're two things to highlight on this. First of all, uh, the peak around April 
Now, of course, they are claiming that those are deaths involving, this is how they're describing it, deaths involving COVID-19. Well, uh, as we have been arguing quite strongly on this program, uh, well, they involve COVID-19 to the degree that they were largely created by the lockdown policy uh, in, any, in any case. But uh, this is the, at the end of the graph in October is the key uh, here because look at the number of deaths that we're talking about. Uh, now, there is no justification for uh, lockdown on the basis of that, is there? No, there isn't. So it's a complete scam. Very poignant um, uh, tweet that came into me over the weekend was that a student in, I think it was Warwick University, committed suicide, but this was uh, blasted out as being COVID until um, the young man's father tweeted out, this is our son you're talking about, and it was nothing to do with COVID. So it's becoming blatant that this is a government propaganda campaign to ensure lockdown, essentially. Uh, but we don't need to worry uh, because, uh, of course, Wales uh, has joined Northern Ireland, is about to join Northern Ireland in creating a circuit breaker uh, lockdown. So complete lockdown for two weeks, possibly three weeks. The Welsh government saying, well, hopefully this will, if we do this really hard thing now, it will keep us through till Christmas then. Uh, and uh, of course, the behaviour change aspect of this continues to drive forward. This is Lanx Live, webcams and speakers to be installed in some Lancashire town centres to enforce social distancing. So they're saying sound systems are being installed to provide safety reminders to visitors uh, while creating an improved atmosphere via music. Uh, David, uh, Scott, do you reckon uh, that will that's what will happen? <laughs> Oh, well, I mean, this is this is what is it? Elevator music to soothe us. Yeah, is that what it is? Uh, we're we're going to be we're going to be soothed. Is that not uh, like McDonald's? McDonald's in very rough areas play classical music in the restaurants because it makes the uh, clientele less likely to get violent. Is that what they're doing? Um, it's it, all. It, remind, it, 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 it reminds me, David, of one flew over the cuckoo's nest in many respects. <laughs> Doesn't everything these days? Yes. Uh, yes. Uh, yeah, okay, so so this report then goes on to say, I mean, this is basically, this has uh, come out of Wire Council uh, and they've uh, submitted a report uh, saying the need to social distance has resulted uh, in some temporary road closures, uh, namely, well, and, and is being reviewed weekly with officers and the partners they're working with. Webcams are to be installed within each town centre to provide a visual projection of the town centres in real time to aid social decent, uh, distancing in, at peak periods. Sound systems are being installed to provide safety reminders to visitors. It is incredible. Uh, but uh, David, I think if we go back uh, a few months, we, Brian introduced uh, this uh, or at least something similar from uh, St. John's Ambulance, if I remember. But it's worth bringing it up again because Dr. Kevin Corbett has, uh, has retweeted this out, uh, really making the point that before you start CPR, you really need to put a towel or a piece of clothing over the mouth and nose of the casualty. Yes, CPR but equals suffocation, writes Dr. Corbett. And uh, yeah, he's absolutely right. It's just, it's, it's, it's an appalling um, disregard for human, human life all based on this this fear of of, of COVID, um, and remember, most of the people doing doing the CPR are going to be young and fit, and at no significant risk from anything, whatever COVID turns out to be, or however dangerous it turns out to be to the elderly and infirm. It is quite clearly not a threat to uh, fit young people, and if that fit young person has a chance to save a life, uh, behaving that way seems to be uh, completely without any justification or foundation.
Yeah, I, I'll just add to this that uh, going back to my military training in the this the sort of first aid thing, checking that airways were clear <laughs> was one of the things I still remember. And what are we doing? We're putting a towel over somebody's face. I think we are training. People are being trained like dogs at the moment. People are being trained to carry out despicable acts because they're not to use common sense anymore. If you block somebody's airways and they're already unconscious, you're going to help them uh, take up a worse, uh, worse condition, mm -hmm. I think. Yeah. Now, David, uh, you wanted to highlight this from the General Assembly of the United Nations. Yes, many thanks to the viewer that sent this in. Um, so this is a written statement um, by the uh, Planetary Organization for Clean en Energy Incorporated. This is a non-governmental organization and it's got special consultative status at the UN and it's writing to the UN uh, Human Rights Council. Um, and it's not writing on energy or anything like that. It's writing on a matter of concern and those are uh, that concern is the vaccine mandates. Uh, so they, 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 they write here about vaccine mandates violate the right to inform consent. Uh, and it des describes how um, lockdowns are, are unprecedented measures that have been introduced, but uh, we're now seeing at least a hypothetical solution uh, being suggested that there should be COVID-19 uh, vaccinations that are compulsory. And they write here, compulsory vaccination violates the right to inform consent, one of the most fundamental ethics in medicine and a human right recognized under international law, including the United Nations International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights 1966 and the Universal Declaration on Bioethics and Human Rights of 2005 and the Convention of the Rights of Persons with Disabilities 2006. Um, so it goes on and it says um, that uh, all these acts, all these requirements, all these legal statutes in the UN have to be followed, but that uh, the United Nations and the World Health Organization, who are legally obligated uh, to uphold uh, all of those rights, have been complicit in violating them. For example, it writes, the United Nations Children's Fund, UNICEF, praised the Maldives government for passing a law in November 2019 that effectively outlawed the exercise of the right to inform consent by threatening parents with prosecution for non-compliance with public vaccine policy. So on the one hand, they have the, they have the requirement to uphold these rights. And this, on the other hand, that's just one of many examples this paper lists of the UN and the World Health Organization trampling on these rights. Um, and uh, the paper goes on, it says, the public is repeatedly assured by public health officials and the media that vaccines are safe and effective. But the absence of randomized placebo-controlled trials comparing long-term health outcomes, including mortality between the vaccinated and the unvaccinated individuals, that statement is not justifiable. Vaccines do not undergo such trials before licensing, nor are whole vaccine schedules studied for safety. So here they are raising the key concerns over the whole case for vaccine safety and the efficacy of the testing regime. And they, they conclude uh, that all vaccines carry risks Compulsory vaccination constitutes a gross violation of the right to informed consent. Governments urgently need to orientate health policies towards protecting rather than violating this human right. And how refreshing it is to see people speaking out in that venue on this matter to protect our rights. And these are, these are arguments that we all have to muster. I think we're all going to need them. Uh, 
Yeah, I'll just say, and this is this is uh, material that people can push straight back at their MPs and local officials that are trying to put the compulsory vaccination program in in place. So, encourage you to use this sort of material in questions to your own MP to challenge what's going on. Uh, okay, let's uh, let's move on to defence then. And uh, well, here is something that many people may not have heard of. It's the Atlantic Future Forum. It's taking place this week in Portsmouth. Uh, and uh, well, look who's a chair, a chairman of it. Our old friend, uh, our old friend uh, Mark said. Well, well, we'll find out a little bit more about him in a little moment. Now, the Atlantic Future Forum seeks, according to the graphic on screen at the moment, to advance the special defence, security, technology, and trading relationship between. United Kingdom and the United States of America. So let's have a look and see what they're saying about it. Uh, during the forum hosted on the aircraft carrier HMS Queen Elizabeth, which has apparently become uh, a floating uh, conference center, uh, and via a sophisticated live broadcast and virtual event, AFF20 will address the following themes. Uh, global competition in a disrupted world. Now this is a theme which uh, the British senior British military have been talking about for some time. Uh, the idea of global competition, uh, big global powers, uh, and particularly uh, Russia and China, they're concerned about here. Uh, building resilience against digital threats, uh, particularly in the cyber domains, and of course Russia and China, the enemy there again. Uh, the value of data to power our economies, uh, and then globalization and reshaping the trade agenda, that's gonna be discussed this week as well. Uh, the next generation of defense, uh, which is mostly going to be artificial intelligence based, it seems, artificial intelligence and the future of warfare. More artificial intelligence here, this time in terms of automation and the future of work. That's going to be discussed at this as well. Uh, defending against pandemics and biological wolf warfare. So uh, not surprising that that's going to be discussed. But of course, biological warfare is the thing which uh, Bill Gates sees as the next big problem coming down the pipe. Uh, he's mentioned that on a number of occasions. Uh, security and prosperity and the future of space, uh, and uh, building back better, greener and more resilient economies. And finally, the future of energy in a post-carbon world. And of course, in a post-carbon world means with no human beings in it, uh, because we are the carbon-based life forms on this planet, aren't we? Uh, and uh, well, we seem to have a mixture of, uh, of um, AI, fourth industrial revolution, uh, and uh, the future of the military. And let's welcome David Ellis to the program. David, uh, uh, what were your initial thoughts uh, on the uh, uh, future Atlantic Future Forum the first time you uh, noticed it? Well, uh, it, looks, it looks like this, um, there's, there's been a bit of a step change, isn't there? We've got, you know, are we coming away from the European Defence Union? I'm, that's a question. Because it seems here that they're very, very interested all of a sudden in a, in, in a strategic partnership to continue or to get better, where it's probably waned over a decade, back with America. But we find our old, uh, our old king, Mark Sedwell I, has gone from being king of everything in government to chairing this uh, meeting. So perhaps that lets everyone know just how important this is. Um, well, indeed. What are your thoughts, Brian? Well, we got an indication that something very special is going on here by the fact that these people who are not direct democratically elected representatives of the country can simply take over or book a slot on board the aircraft carrier Queen Elizabeth 
to run an agenda on what's going to happen with our defence policy. I come back to this question, who are these people and who gave them the mandate to act? And then I'll add, I don't think they ever had one. Uh, well, we're going to have a look at who they are in a second, but this goes well beyond just defence policy because this, yeah. is, this is about uh, building a future relationship with the United States. Uh, I think uh, David's right to bring up uh, the European Union, the European Defence Union here, as we'll see in a minute. Uh, but we'll, we'll just have a look at who the people are behind this first. So, of course, we've got Mark Sedwell, uh, most recently the uh, Cabinet Secretary, uh, both to Theresa May and Boris Johnson, head of the civil service at the same time, also National Security Advisor at the same time. Thus, why David was uh, referring to him as King Mark, because he seemed to be pretty much the king of everything uh, within the Cabinet Office. Uh, he was previously UK Ambassador to Afghanistan, uh, NATO senior civilian representative in Afghanistan, and he was permanent secretary in the Home Office for a time as well. But then on top of that, we've got this gent, Stephen Watson, uh, director of the Atlantic Future Forum. Uh, and he's also, uh, he was project lead for uh, AFF-19. I think he still is for 20. Uh, he serves as an honorary Commodore in the Royal Navy uh, and helped conceive the Atlantic Future Forum. Uh, and uh, well, he is chief executive of CTN Group, which is an independent media and communications agency, which works with global businesses, governments and international organizations. Now, this is extremely important because uh, in the next topic that we're going to come on to, we're going to see this fusion uh, of government, uh, business and uh, NGOs uh, continuing, that theme continuing. Uh, this man, Stephen Watson, is also former journalist and BBC News producer and has been a communications advisor to 10 Downing Street. Uh, then we've got Sheena Dunn here, uh, and uh, she is also a project director at the AFF. Uh, she is formerly head of events and client engagement at Pioneer, Pioneer Investments. And prior to that, she was project and marketing director for an organization called Informa in the Middle East. Some may have heard of that. Uh, and then we've got Chris Wilkins, uh, who is uh, uh, he was 20 years uh, strategic and political communications. He was former director of strategy and chief speechwriter at 10 Downing Street. He's now running a reputation and strategy consultancy, so reputation management. Uh, it's all about PR and communications, Brian, and selling uh, a story. So uh, this gives us a clue as to, as to one aspect of what's going on with, uh, with Britain's future relationship post-Brexit, because this is absolutely part of global Britain. Another part of Global Britain uh, is, is this. Um, so here we are, the integrated operating concept. Uh, now this was announced by uh, General Sir Nick Carter uh, at the policy exchange a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Inter integrated operating concept 2025 sets out a new approach to the utility of armed forces in an era of persistent competition. So there we've got this competition idea and a rapidly evolving character of warfare. Uh, it represents the most significant change in UK military thought in several generations. It will lead to a fundamental transformation in the military instrument and the way that it's used. Uh, and this is really key, uh, David Ellis, because we've got a number of things there. First of all, we've got this idea of persistent global com competition. Uh, we've got this idea of rapidly evolving character of warfare. And one of the things that we'll come on to in a second that Nick Carter was really pushing. In fact, he was very much extending the comments that he, that he and others, uh, uh, Mark Carlton Smith, for example, have made uh, that we're, we're in a, a sort of a world of hybrid perpetual warfare, that there is no difference between war and peace anymore. And therefore, we've got to have this huge transformation in military thought and huge reorientation 
of the military. Um, and uh, it, it's, it's on the basis of what? On the basis of something that, that, that they're making up for themselves? Because I don't see this uh, global competition coming out of Russia and China at the moment. It's a really good question. I mean, some are framing it in terms of superpower competition. So, you know, that's, that's a two-way street, isn't it? You know, the superpowers are competing in some fashion or one's competing against another. So I, I've come at this from sort of, you know, I wanted to get to causation. Um, and, you know, that's really where we've been going for quite some time. What is the basis of our government's defence policy? And I'm not talking about what they publish. I wonder what really actually is defence policy. The stuff that's most secret, that they're not even, you know, that the Cabinet Office, Mandarins and the likes of Mark said, well, you know, that control all this are potentially not even going to fully discuss with the ministers because the ministers are now just invisible. All of this is done from the top of the cabinet office and those people. They control the ministers just as they control the MPs. So Danit really come at this from another perspective of, you know, well, this global Britain gambit, the controlling of the narrative, you've just seen a whole host of people there involved with this forum who are basically PR merchants. They want to control a narrative. That's their specialism. So what is that narrative? Well, Danit said, well, this global Britain gambit is a load of nonsense because unless you increase the defence budget, that gambit is just a car bumper sticker. So I, I agree with that. That's exactly right. Because what we're seeing is, is a reduction year on year on year and decade on decade since 1980, since the Not Review. Britain has, begun, has, has conducted a disarmament process. Now, Anne Whittacombe highlighted this in, in the interview I did with her, that the disarmament process started in 1980 and the Soviet Union changed in 1989. We started disarming nine, you know, essentially nine years before that superpower changed direction. What is the causation of this policy? Because if you look at that graph, it is still going down. And as we've heard from Admiral Lord West, it's going to continue to go down. Um, so, David, I'm going to suggest a couple of uh, answers to that just before I do. Have you got a thought on? on no, because I think I know what, where, where you go. Well, where well, you're look, come look, in on this. Yes. Well, well, look. Let me just uh, let me just bring uh, uh, General Sir Nick Carter on the screen here, so that we can get an idea of what he was saying at the policy exchange. He said the nature of war remains constant. It's visceral and violent, and it's always about politics. And he said, what is changing is the character of warfare, which is evolving significantly due to the pervasiveness of information and the pace of technological change. And David, the, as we watched uh, his presentation at that event, the thing that came across very strongly was that he is trying to design a new role for Britain in the world. Uh, and one of the things that wasn't clear to me was, is this, the se is this senior military uh, trying to design a new role for Britain in the world militarily uh, because uh, basically the, the, the removal of the, of the funding for, for uh, tanks and ships and stuff like this is uh, that that's a done deal. It, nothing can change that. So they're trying to find a different position. Or is it that, the, that actually it's, the, it's the, the change in the role in the world which is driving everything else? That's not clear just yet as far as I can see. But let's just have a look at this, what this means. Uh, the threat has evolved. They're saying that adversaries don't recognise the rule of law. This is unbelievable position to take because the British government is probably uh, one of the first governments in the world to abandon the rule of law. 
Uh, anyway, it goes on to say, pervasive information and new technologies have enabled new tools and techniques to undermine our cohesion, whoever R is. Uh, adversaries have studied the Western way of war and modernized their capabilities accordingly. Now, he, uh, in his speech at the policy exchange, made a, a big deal of this. He was saying, you know, uh, West, that, that, that our, our uh, opponents, authoritarian enemies, uh, and he was particularly talking about Russia and China, uh, because we uh, waged our warfare in the last 30 years in public uh, with the media basically following everything that the, that the military have done, uh, that Russia and China have watched very carefully how the West uh, wages war and therefore uh, know how to deal with it. Now, of course, he didn't mention the fact that Russia and China weren't waging any war in that period of time at all, at least not and nothing anywhere near as significant as, as the West. Uh, but anyway, it goes on. Uh, adversaries proliferate their capabilities to proxies, and he very much was suggesting that the future of warfare is proxy warfare, uh, and uh, the effect of lawfare. And uh, David, of course, lawfare is a topic that uh, you've been trying to highlight uh, and over the last few weeks. It was, was the subject of your first David Ellis report, um, and it's, it's a word that most people don't have any concept of. Uh, no, and, and it's something that, from perhaps a veteran's point of view, you know, they do because they understand that they're being prosecuted under this rift in what was going to be, you know, old, uh, old British law and then EU law and then the conflict that between uh, the Geneva Convention on the Rules of Armed Conflict. Now, Petraeus highlighted this and he said that basically if it carried on, Britain and America would not be able to fight with each other. So. I strongly suspect that's probably where we are now with this uh, Atlantic Future Forum um, getting a bit of a push. And these comments that are coming in from uh, Carter are quite relevant because he's really saying that, you know, what are we going to have? What is loosely British military? I mean, it's it's going to be reduced still further under this facade of a review, if you want to call it that. But it's just a, just a mechanism to reduce it, basically. Lovegrove set out the agenda when he took the job on in 2016-17 that it would be reduced, and that's what's going to happen. So the, it doesn't matter who the minister is, they're irrelevant. Uh, and it doesn't matter who you vote for, that's irrelevant as well. It doesn't matter what kind of democratic or party you think of, that's irrelevant as well, because the agenda's in the boiler room somewhere there in the cabinet office. The new role will be without hardware, I strongly suspect, because that's what's being intimated from the senior officers that I'm speaking to and We'll hear in a minute from Admiral West, uh, and that new role will be doing what? Controlling the narrative or something? You know, I mean, is that really what Carter's talking about? Uh, that that is that is a big part of what uh, Carter is talking about. But let's just uh, continue with this. Uh, the central idea of the integrated operating concept is to drive the conditions and tempo of strategic activity, rather than responding to the actions of others from a static, home-based posture of contingent response. Now, David uh, Scott, I'd be interested in your thoughts on this particular statement, because this really says to me that uh, whatever form of hybrid warfare we're going to see the British military uh, engaging in in the future, we're going to be driving it rather than responding to it. That's not a defensive situation. That's an offensive situation. It absolutely is. And uh, it also implies... Um, that we're part of a larger alliance, we're part of a larger union, um, because we are not going to be able to provide the hardware and the men to do any of the actual fighting. 
if we're doing coordination, if we're controlling the narrative, if we're going to be an influencer and sit above the fray and control things, um, if that's even remotely possible, that you know, who who would allow that to happen for very long, unless we actually had skin in the game and resources um, pushing whatever conflict we happen to get ourselves into. If we're going to be sitting above the fray without the means to defend ourselves, we're going to be part of a union with other nations. And ultimately, at the end of the day, we are going to have to follow the agenda of that wider union because we do not have the military capability to resist and to strike out on our own should that be necessary. Um, well, uh, I think that's absolutely the case. From Based on Carter's speech, that is absolutely the message he was sending out. However, uh, just that last point that you made there, David, uh, he is also sending out the message that uh, Britain sees itself, hashtag Global Britain, Britain sees itself as the driver of the, the, the policies. It's not, they're not going to be operating under EU Defence Union uh, goals. They are going to be driving the goals. This is, this is at least what he's selling. That's whether other people will buy it or not is another question, but that's what he's selling. Um, so let's, uh, let's continue with this then. Uh, but maximizing advantage will only be realized through being more integrated within the military instrument, vertically through the levels of war, strategic, operational and tactical, across government and with our allies and in depth within our societies. So, uh, David Scott, this is fusion doctrine, as we've been talking about for three years now. Uh, this is fusion doctrine, but on steroids. Yes, everything is uh, everything is part of the conflict. Uh, does your does your your citizenship do what it's told? Because the ability to get them to obey, to undergo hardships, to um, follow government diktats, that's a weapon. What do they believe? That's a weapon. Do they believe that the other side are evil? That's a weapon. Is it true what they believe? That that doesn't matter. That the, the weapon doesn't require truth. The weapon just requires belief and obedience. And everything, every part of society is now uh, is now militarized in 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 in, in the regard that the, the the state is going to be viewing this as part of the pressure it can bring on the opposition. Uh, well, it goes on. The old distinction between foreign and domestic defence is increasingly irrelevant. When fake news appears to originate not abroad but at home, it gains credibility and reach, stoking confusion, disagreement, uh, division and doubt in our societies. This has been particularly evident with the significant uptick in disinformation and misinformation during the coronavirus crisis. Uh, home is no longer a secure sanctuary, whence we may choose to launch interventions unhindered. Away is no longer a region, regional horizon, but a global one involving space and the electromagnetic spectrum. And David, what uh, it strikes me as being said here is there is no safety. They don't view home as being friendly anymore. The, the military is now going to be viewing home as, the, as an enemy, just as the entire globe is an enemy. Uh, and uh, I think that's a, a pretty strange position to be taking. I, on one previous uh, UK column news, we showed a video of the Black Watch coming home to Perth. And rather than having a normal parade, they were doing a fake combat patrol 
through the streets of Perth. And it was it was weird. It was it was strange. The response of the crowd was strange. The whole thing was strange. And I remember David Ellis saying at the time that this is this is getting those soldiers no longer to see home as a place of safety, simply just another combat zone. It's very, it's, it's, it's very worrying. And I, I, I was particularly struck by the, the list of things which are threats include doubt and disagreement. Um, the, the, these are necessary things. This, this means dissidents. This means people who ask questions, intellectuals. These will all be viewed as enemy combatants under this mindset. Uh, just before I bring David Ellis back on, Brian, are you thoughts? Well, I totally agree with what uh, David had just said. The other thing that I have in my mind is that outrageous uh, British Army um, document which uh, had a matrix on it and it said that anybody that was a supporter of the UK uh, was effectively to be cl um, classified as an extreme right-wing extremist. Um, that document appeared, it, we know it was genuine and then it slowly disappeared away. But, <clears throat> excuse me, if you take that to its conclusion, if you live in UK and you support UK society and you're a believer in the United Kingdom as a country, you are somehow an enemy of the government. And that's uh, a pretty astonishing situation. And it takes my brain to the next step that the government is not a... Um, is not a body representing the public it's a foreign body and we've effectively got this government of occupation which uh, david scott has warned us about uh, david ellis uh, what are your thoughts on nick carter's speech and and uh, this uh, integrated op integrated operating concept do you think uh, it's fair to suggest that this is uh, you know this this is britain's military potentially heading towards war with ourselves as well as the rest of the the planet? I strongly disagree with, with what Carter's saying and the direction that it's going. And it's been going in this direction for quite some time, but it's done it softly over a period. We've had a, a period where those uh, senior officers on and around the not review in 1980 in the Falklands War were very verbal and used to speak out and used to, you know, chirp up in the paper very frequently about defence cuts. Well, I never said, well, I mean, I was fundamental. That's not what was going on. They were unifying the military and, uh, and that's not what we were dealing with. But it was politically pitched as defence cuts so that the general public would accept it and it was normalised. But that's um, what we've got is a, is a decades old problem. This is a 40 year old problem, really. And I strongly suspect because of the tone that they're now using, um, and I'm going to bring what David Scott and I did the, some time ago with the Churchill forecast in 1945 that left left socialist and communist party policy. You know, if you bring it in, this is what it's going to do. And this is where we are now. This is exactly as that warning forecast. If you start to speak out, then you're wrong. And I and I think that we want to go to, to two two fundamental data points. We have disarmed, frankly, over 40 years. And Russia and China have rearmed quite rapidly over the last 20 years. So for Carter to say our enemies have observed what we're doing and they've adapted and whatnot, yes, that's exactly what they've done. They've increased hardware and platforms and striking capability and fighting capability. And what has the British government done? It has 
disarmed the national force to a point now where it couldn't really function as anything like a national force. It would have, if it wanted to do anything physically, like in a shooting war, it would have to do that with other people. But he, Carter's talking about a non-shooting type of warfare that's perpetual, hybrid, domestic, as well as um, as, as well as it being abroad. It's 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 a it's a kind of across all across all points. I mean, I wonder really, you know, what is at the bottom of all this policy? Is it global communism? What what is it that we're dealing with? What is this policy? And who is controlling it? Because it's nothing like a, a national policy. This is not a mistake. It's not happening just, you know, randomly. There's a lot of people in there pushing this. And we've lost the capability with the senior officers to do anything about it. They were effectively, you know, de, you know, they were divested of their offices. You know, they threw the admiralty out of the admiralty arch under Jock Slater and were put in an office and were, you know, they no longer have any kind of any kind of clout that they used to have, you know, if the general public thought that they had clout, you know, they don't. They're like the ministers. The ministers don't have any clout anymore. So there's so, the, you know, there's symbionts there between what's really going on. But we see a glimmer every now and again with one or two MPs. But bear in mind, we now know that the Cabinet Office controls their narrative as well. I've got to say, David, we've got, we've got some very big clues coming onto the table, haven't we? Because we can see that we've got the UN via the World Health Organization that's controlling what happens in this country as a result of COVID. So that's one example of an external global body with control. We've got open talk now of a full reset of, a, of economies taking place. We've got talk about a fourth industrial revolution happening on a worldwide scale. We've got Agenda 2030, um, where the documents are all showing us that what's going to take place is going to take place in different countries, but it's going to be the same policy. One of our viewers has just said what's coming is global fascism, and I don't think they're far off it. We've got people behind the scenes thinking that they're going to control these policies worldwide and we better add that if you want to do that if that's your agenda you're going to need to be able to control the world's money supply to get there um, well look we better we're rapidly running out of time so we better get a move on here uh, david i understand you've been a, a very naughty boy <laughs> well post post the uh, the, pro, uh, the defense support with admiral lord west I posted the YouTube video all over the senior officers' Twitter feeds, all over the government Twitter feeds, uh, everywhere that was talking about defence. I posted it all over the Future Atlantic Forum um, and all of the usual suspects. Tobias Elwood, all these people, they all had a copy of the clip with a suitable comment. And then uh, a lovely, a lovely window of opportunity from Lord Ricketts, former National Security Advisor, who was the first National Security Advisor, and it was Kim Derrick, Somebody else, and then said, "Well, uh, who was saying that the um, uh, you're going to put a slide up on it? That the that now if the trade talks are over, are the security talks? If you pop that slide up, yeah, and then I'll talk over it while we're while we don't. So I've, I've, I'll give him the Lord West clip because it's highly relevant because he's he's actually a not only is he a Cold War admiral, so that's great because he understands this." communist problem and how they used to operate. Um, he's got a really good eye for strategically forecasting stuff, and he's perfectly articulated on that program 
what is going to happen in the production time lag of these new ships that you know are not really being ordered and we've got this hypocrisy of a you know a shipbuilding czar of ben wallace but he's not really building ships and in the interim we're going to see the royal navy reduced to around about eight frigates that was lord west's forecast now that's Chilling. Now, he said that that was a national dis it's a national disgrace now. So if we're going even further with it, we're seeing more deplatforming going on. So uh, I gave uh, Lord Ricketts this and said, well, you know, would you like to state what the security factors were that we were discussing with the EU? Uh, and then it seems my account has been suspended. Well, there you are. Right. We can't we can't tolerate dissidents or anybody that dares to criticise the British government. You're going to be closed down. Isn't that what it says? Well, this is this is obviously not a conversation you can have. So I've gone straight, obviously, to what the I mean, the revelation there in Lord Ricketts um, tweet uh, is, is superb, because what he did is he said that there were security conversations going on, defence and security, which, of course, is something that we've been trying to get them to own up to for quite some time. And there he goes and he, he hemorrhages this on Twitter. I mean, it's hysterical, isn't it? Uh, you know, joking apart, though, it, 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 you know, this is just, it, it, I, you know, everybody can see it now. You know, this is this is blatant. If you go into that area, you'll get your Twitter feed shut off. Yeah. Well, if we haven't got the equipment, we've got major problems in the military. And this is a mail story, which... Uh, a lot of other newspapers are covering too drunk to be in charge of nukes royal navy officer on nuclear sub dubbed hms sex and cocaine is sent home in disgrace after arriving for a shift drunk and clutching a bag of barbecue chicken uh, this is hms valiant one of our bombers nuclear deterrent submarine in america unloading or loading trident nuclear missiles this is the deterrent of the country or part of it and this is what's happening on board and if we go back uh, well lovely picture here of former defense secretary gavin williams son. Who, pardon gavin williamson gavin williamson have mm -hmm. i missed a bit there i have i've cut him short what a shame uh, this is um, what uh, was reported about the submarine that in 2017 nine crew were tested positive for uh, cocaine so that's a uh, immensely worrying thing for any any military vehicle but a nuclear submarine and a deterrent submarine as well four officers including the captain i'll say it alleged because it disappeared into a black hole alleged to be having affairs with fellow crew men and women so this was a fairly uh, gay ship i think crew going awol by flying home and uh, two sailors quit now don't know whether they were involved in scandals or they saw through it all but two decided they didn't want to serve on board that ship anymore so they left and we've now got a weapons engineering officer drunk on duty as they're unloading trident missiles um, so this is pretty exceptional stuff what did the ministry of defense say we do not comment on matters related to submarine operations where an individual's conduct falls short of the high standards we expect we won't hesitate to take appropriate action so we are commenting but actually this is anonymous so what are they going to do promote the person this david I, we're very tight for time so i'll just give you 10 seconds on this 
we are seeing utter breakdown not only of equipment within Britain's armed forces but also the conduct of people in the in the force and this is being deliberately engineered in my opinion uh, there's certainly some engineering going on. I would really, at this point, love to have Admiral Roger Lane Knott's point of view on this as somebody that run Polaris and handed over to Trident as the flag officer. Uh, I suspect what's going on here, that this is part of a propaganda exercise and somebody doesn't want us to actually have SSNs and SSBNs. I think this is a, this is a drive to disarm us even further from having those boats. Uh, and the industry to produce them. I think this is a double-edged approach. And if they carry on slandering this all like this, um, then, you know, the public perception and the public mood will, will change. change. It's something that we need to combat and resist uh, yeah. and challenge thoroughly here because I, 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 I don't trust the Daily Mail anyway. Uh, so, you know, what is... And I've asked the question, you know, what to one or two people this morning, what's really going on here? So, you know... Uh, let's try and see through this propaganda mist and what's really going on. OK, well, I'm, I'm going to put this one in to help us. This is Plymouth Live from uh, yesterday. Uh, this was the headline. Royal Navy warships room of satanic rituals permitting devil worshipping far out at sea. So that was listed at uh, four o'clock on the 18th of October 2020. But of course, this is not current news. It's just reappeared. And if we go back to the UK column reports on 20, in 2014, we were warning that there was an attack on Christianity inside the British Armed Forces. So this was the National Secular Society who said we need to get rid of that uh, nasty Chris, Christian dogma so that we can all be equal. And the original article about the Satanism on board the warship goes back to 2004. This was the Telegraph's original headline, The Devil and the Deep Blue Sea. And in the article, they talk about the leading seaman who become a Satanist. And they said that he, Cranmer, was now lobbying the Ministry of Defence to make Satanism a registered religion in the armed forces so that Satanists can join up without fear of marginalisation and the necessity to put up with Christian dogma. So this is policy driven by the MOD. They don't want to comment on it, but the MOD has driven this policy. So we need to know who has been doing it and what is it produced? Well, some pretty horrific stuff because not only has bullying uh, increased in the armed forces, the style of it has got more and more disgusting. And this was the Plymouth Herald here back in 2015, uh, talking about a serious physical assault as a drunken prank. Um, so we've got the Royal Navy promoting Satanism. We've got a breakdown of discipline and morality. Uh, but I'm going to say, what was the point in in the uh, UK? Uh, sorry, in the Plymouth uh, Live putting up this article, uh, which is some 16 years old. I've sent them an email to ask them. I think we can jump on a bit here, actually, okay, uh, so right to the adverts. Okay, okay. So uh, let's uh, move on. If you like what the UK column does, and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org/forward/slash/community, where there are options to help us out there. Uh, now, a few ads. Uh, first of all, uh, the first episode of A Dissident's Guide to the Constitution has uh, been put up uh, on yesterday, in fact. Uh, it's had about a thousand listens so far. Uh, David, uh, it was quite an enjoyable programme to produce. 
It, it was it was a lot of fun, and it's a very good feedback thus far. Uh, absolutely. Now, if we uh, move on, then a new Northern Exposure. Yes, this is a, this is the fourth in the five interview series with Samantha Baldwin. This takes us through um, the the long and continuing trauma of uh, family courts and um, the, the the strange position whereby facts are reversed by one word from a judge and then the whole state starts treating a loving parent as though they are an abuser despite them not having any conviction or being charged or questioned or having any evidence against them the state uh, um, behaves as though it was a done deal so um, it's not a matter of trial first uh, sorry sentence first trial later you get the sentence and you never get the trial uh, so it's a, it's a very interesting uh, uh, story um, from Samantha Baldwin and the fifth episode will be out next week and that that is stunning. Um, so hope uh, hope everyone will join for both of those. And, and a little reminder because we were quoting him earlier uh, earlier on, this is uh, Dr. Kevin Corbett. Uh, his interview on Northern Exposure is getting a lot of attention as well. Uh, it's very precise. It's very uh, perceptive as to what the COVID crisis is really all about. So I would encourage people to go and look that one out. Uh, and a quick reminder uh, of AV 11.1 coming up uh, on the 31st of uh, October, 1st of November. Um, and uh, details on the UK column website, but also at alternativeview.co.uk. And you can get tickets there. And we'll have more on Wednesday. Yes, absolutely. And uh, well, where does that take us, Brian? Uh, this, oh, well, this takes this us to Scotland, Scotland, David. indeed, and smacking, I believe. Yes. Now, how do you know when the Scottish government is lying to you? Uh, well, yes, they're breathing. That's right. The lips are moving. <laughs> so this is um, this is uh, Dr. Ashley Frawley, who is uh, head of the uh, anti the, the the campaign against the smacking ban. Um, it's called the Be Reasonable campaign, um, and she states quite clearly and correctly that the government misled the public over the smacking ban um, and because they said it's not about criminalizing parents well it is because parents will be treated as criminals now the next slide here from the be reasonable campaign just illustrates how stark this is 2019 i assure members that there's not our intention is not to criminalize parents that was marie todd in the scottish parliament so the, the act goes through and the first thing that the Scottish government does, it puts out a, a, a notice. If you see someone physically punishing their child, you should call 999 to report a crime in progress. So the very first thing they do is they criminalize parents for smacking. Exactly the reverse of what they said. They are lying to us again. Uh, this has not gone down well. It's not gone down unnoticed. Um, but it's even worse than just the lying to the public um, because they're lying to the children as well. Uh, children are urged, the Herald reporting here, children are urged to call police over smacking. So they get, there's, there's these creepy leaflets being distributed through the schools now and the children are being urged to call the police if they're smacked. So they're obviously the children have no idea of the effect of this, that there'll be an investigation, that they might be taken into care, that their families will be torn apart potentially and all the harm that can be done the children have no comprehension of this but they're in state schools they're subject to state propaganda and this is what they're being told now um 
there has been a bit of pushback and the dear old Scottish government have quietly edited what they're saying. Uh, they haven't really admitted that they've changed it, but they've changed the story. This is the current story. If you see someone physically punishing their child, you can call the police on 101, not 999, that's somehow better, if you think a crime has been committed. Think, but you just said it was a crime. Anyway, they've changed it. Uh, you can also contact your local council because sending social services on them, that'll stop them. Or Crime Stoppers, who will pass the information about the crime to the police. So it's a crime now. It's not maybe a crime, it's a crime now. Or as always been the case, you can call 999 if a child or your own person is in immediate danger. So they've backed off a little bit, but only a little bit. We're still going to get the police and social services involved. We're still going to wreck your family life. Uh, and we're still going to treat you as a criminal. Um, this is the logo here from the Be Reasonable campaign. Uh, the, 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 the any parent standing in front of uh, a, a, a height chart getting their, their mug shot taken by Police Scotland. That's what uh, having children in Scotland is going to get for you. Um, and uh, the Daily Mail, the Scottish Mail, sorry, Scottish Mail on Sunday did a, 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 a large piece on this. Um, the title here, the, the, the headline is called The Police If Your Parents Smack You. Um, and uh, they are reporting on the creepy leaflets that are going around schools. And they comment that kids have no idea that they may be taken from their families. Um, now, uh, back to uh, Dr. Frawley of uh, the Be Reasonable campaign. She comments, as with the hated name person policy, the smacking ban shows that the government has complete contempt for parents. Ministers simply don't trust parents to bring up their own children. This is correct. And what, what is all re also remember, what's the worst parent in the world? It is, of course, the state, the home of the worst of abuse, the worst of sexual, physical and emotional torment that children go through is in state care. But we're not really taking any notice of this. Uh, one other thing we just highlight, an old UK column article called Curious and Curiouser. Um, this is, uh, this is uh, Newell is his name. Um, he was the man who led the anti-smacking campaign. Um, he led the anti-smacking campaign right up to his conviction for raping a 13-year-old boy. Um, he's a paedophile and he was um, pushing forward this campaign that is destroying families. I wonder why a paedophile would want uh, the government to be going into families and breaking them up and taking children into care and making children uh, report and, and inform on their own parents and destroying the bonds of family trust. Why, gentlemen, would a paedophile be promoting such policies? And why would the Scottish government be following them? I, th I think we need to answer your question. The why would they be doing this is because the children who are in care are the sweetie shop for the child abusers. This is quite clear um, that uh, to supply children for abusers, they need to take children from their families. That is what is happening in UK. And it's a billion, multi-billion pound industry via a false care si um, system and also the, the money that changes hands around the abuse of the children and the videos. So I think we do need to answer that. Um, okay, David, uh, following on from Patrick's reports on Friday, what have you got on, uh, on creepy Joe Biden? 
Well, just a little update, because Patrick's report was excellent and very detailed, um, but the, the story has been continuing to develop over the weekend. Um, so the Evening Standard here reports um, uh, the, all about the laptop and, 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 and some comments from, from Trump. Uh, they found the laptop. You know what they call that, the laptop from hell. That's the laptop from hell. See what happens with it. A giant trove of emails show Hunter Biden making deals and setting up meetings with his father Joe. So this is what this is what Patrick was was um, uh, commenting on. Um, uh, but the other aspect of this is it's it's now playing as a major element in the election campaign because uh, Donald Trump is putting this information out. Donald Trump has a copy of his team has a copy of the of the hard drive from this laptop um, and uh, Hunter Biden has confirmed that everything's real by sending an email to the shop the repair shop where he where he left his laptop long enough for it to become the legal property of the repair shop and long enough for the the repair shop owner to wonder what was on it and then send it to the FBI uh, he sent an email in to the re repair shop asking if he could have his hard drive back so there's now no there's no dispute that it's his laptop and it's his hard drive and it's his information, and Trump is going after it in the in the sort of accurate and direct way that only Trump can can do, uh, and he's he's describing this as um, uh, that that uh, he's he's describing um, uh, the Bidens. Uh, as a, this, Hunter Biden said, so the guy's a vacuum cleaner. He follows his father around and takes millions and hundreds of millions and billions out of these other countries. This is so dishonest, I call him the human vacuum cleaner. And he's also saying, well, I got closed down and the New York Post got closed down by big tech. And they're censoring this story. And the story's true. The story's sound and the story's important because the story goes to the question as to whether Biden, if he wins the election, is going to be the most corrupt president in United States history. And now the big tech are deciding the American people don't get to know this. They don't get to ask those questions. They don't get to know the facts. So he's saying that he's going to go after big tech, Twitter and Facebook uh, over the over the story. Uh, and there's a tweet here from him. So terrible that Facebook and Twitter took down the story of the smoking gun emails relating to sleepy Joe Biden and his son Hunter in the New York Post. It's only the beginning for them. There's nothing worse than a corrupt politician who feels Section 230. So Facebook and Twitter have now put themselves in the crosshair of the second Trump administration. Good. Interesting for the election. I'm sure we're going to be seeing more on that. Well, just to end here, I've been paying attention to uh, our illustrious church leaders, and I was fascinated by this headline, Brexit Anglican leaders issue internal markets bill warning um, now we could have a discussion about the internal markets bill that would probably be for you Mike I'm more interested that the focus of these Anglican leaders is not on the moral leadership of the country and the spiritual leadership of the country but they're more interested in uh, what's happening with in, uh, internal and particularly uh, European politics 
who do we expect to see leading the charge? Well, of course, it's Justin, of course, it's Justin Welby. Um, anybody can give me guidance on what sort of dress he's wearing here and where he bought it. I'd love to know because it's very, very fetching. Uh, he says the bill is, of course, not just concerned with domestic law. It's currently asked the country's highest lawmaking body to equip a government minister to shock horror break international law. Now, this is uh, this is terrible. And I can imagine that uh, Mr. Welby is very concerned about it. Uh, this is enormous moral as well as political and legal consequences. See, there you go. He's only worried about the moral. <laughs> we, we believe this would create a disastrous uh, precedent. Um, but he doesn't really want to be talking about the Church of England law breaking when it comes to the abuse of children, because, of course, uh, his organisation's just been slated by the uh, ICSA Independent Child Abuse Inquiry, even though that specialises in covering up abuse, it had to point a finger at the Church of England because its uh, reputation was so appalling. So where's Mr. Welby best at home? Well, here he is with the men and women in, in black. And um, this was um, International Monetary Fund get-together uh, where supposedly they're talking about how the world's obscenely wealthy bankers can become more moral and spiritually upstanding. But they did have a few glasses of champagne as well, which I understand Mr. Welby enjoyed. So there we go. Quite amazing. Um, I'll add this in because this was the BBC webpage this morning. Um, at 8.30, there was an invisible BBC headline that the UK economy had shrunk by 20%. The population could see it because it was there on the front page. But where was it? Well, you had to come down here to UK facing unprecedented economic uncertainty. But you had to be quick because by 12 o'clock, um, that headline had disappeared. Uh, but it's quite a headline. The UK economy shrunk by 20%. This is the article the link took you to. And this was the quote, Britain's economy shrank by 20% in the three months to June as it battled with the coronavirus pandemic, the biggest fall of any large advanced economy. And that headline was simply not on the BBC front page. So we're, we're in a state controlled media situation. But here's Andrew Bailey, the big man from the Bank of England. He's warning there's a significant risk of economic growth continuing to be lower than expected. I bet you need three degrees to work that out, Mike. Absolutely. Incredible. I expect output at the end of the third quarter to be 10% lower than the end of 2019. And then it goes on. Our assessment of negative interest rates from the experience elsewhere is that they probably appear to work better in a more wholesale financial market <laughs> context and probably better in a nascent economic upturn. Uh, David, very quickly, um, very good thing, these negative interest rates, apparently. Uh, you seem to be you seem to be wetting yourself there, David. It's so funny. Right, yeah. Negative interest rates, okay. Uh, negative interest rates, we can't really trust the ordinary man in the street because if we say to the ordinary man in the street that if you borrow a million pounds to buy a house, um, the, neg the, the interest, you don't pay interest. No, no, you, the, it comes into your bank account as a credit every month. I mean, you just can't afford not to buy a million pound house at that rate. Now, if you say that to the ordinary man in the street, he might go a bit mental and, and, and do unwise things. But our friends in the city, our friends in the city are wise. 
and, 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 and they won't abuse this power. No, no, no. They won't take advantage. They only do sensible things. So it's, it's wholesale that we want to do, not, not retail. And, um, uh, oh dear. Yeah, we'll come back on this. There was so much stupidity in a really short, right. short slide there. These are the people that Archbishop Welby is in bed with in a figurative way. Uh, look at what the BBC said. The BBC comment was that if interest rates are negative, the Bank of England charges for any deposits it holds on behalf of the banks. That encourages banks to lend money to business rather than deposit it. <laughs> so the BBC, um, never mind the economy has shrunk by 20%. The BBC is very happy with everything that's happening. And the other part of this article was this lady, Kristalina George Eva. Um, uh, she's speaking as IMF managing director in April. Officials from the group of 20, the G20 countries are the largest and fastest growing economies. But hang on a minute, aren't they all not growing, Mike. Uh, well, it's negative growth. <laughs> yeah, they're the fastest negative growth growing economies, agreed to suspend debt repayments and interest payments to the world poorest in countries until the end of the year. We're buying some time, but we have to face reality. There are much more de decisive actions ahead of us. Doing too little too late is costly to debtors also costly to creditors. Global debt levels were predicted to reach 100% of gross to domestic product in 2021. And this is the team that the head of the Church of England is in bed with in order to improve life for people who can't afford to feed themselves. I, I better Bailey, stop, Bailey's, David. <laughs> Bailey's other comment, right? Bailey's other comment about negative interest rates is it. It, they work better in, in a nascent economic upturn, right? So what he's saying there is that we might not want to cut the cost of borrowing negative and pay you to borrow money, right, if the economy is tanking. But if, if, if we've hit bottom and we're already coming up, that's when we want to um, make money free, in fact, bribe you to take loans so that we cause a, a huge economic upswing and, and, and have vast amounts of spending. That's what he's saying, because that, that'll fix things. Uh, it, well, absolutely. Now, let's just end, David, on a, uh, well, I don't know what we to say about this particular cartoon <laughs> from the Telegraph here. This is, this is perfect. This is, the, this is our political system, right? So you have the, the, the alleged opposition and the alleged government, right, dancing the same walls together through the graveyard that is Britain, Right, we've got dignity, freedom, employment, children, and facts are all got RIP written on them, and they are in harmony waltzing amongst the the gravestones. I think that is exactly where our political system is just now, to a T. To a T. We better end there, David. Yeah. Thank you very much for joining us. We just say to our viewers and listeners particularly echoing back that many of you are saying thank you UK column for keeping us sane in these times that what we're watching is the orchestrated breakdown of this country and uh, what we need to do is be getting into um, a really in-depth analysis of who the individual people are that are driving this policy so we've got to drill into this we're not interested in labels it's the Tories or um, it's uh, Labour or it's this group or it's that group. We need the identity of the individuals who are bringing in this policy because it's those individuals that need to be brought into a court of law. We'll leave it there.
Thanks for joining us. Bye-bye.